what do they say? Third time's a charm? More like 30. Let's see if you can get it right this time. Hey, it's Sachit, and this is The Conscious Creator Show. Through exclusive interviews with authors, actors, entrepreneurs, musicians, other podcasters, and all kinds of creators, we'll explore how to make a life through your art without selling your soul. The creative side of business and the business side of being a creator, if you will. We've got a host of amazing partners like Brain.fm and other amazing companies. So head on over to creators.show, that's C-R-E-A-T-O-R-S dot show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and more. Enjoy the show. Yo, yo, yo. So have you noticed how all podcasters start their intros differently? This is actually what my friend Raj of the Stay Grounded podcast does. He starts off by going, yo, yo, yo. And um, if you notice, Tim Ferriss sometimes will say something along the lines of, hello, ladies and germs. And the reason I'm highlighting that is because we've got a really special episode today with one of my great friends in Austin, S.J. Murray. And this one's definitely a bit different. While other episodes have sort of been at that intersection of art and business, this one's a lot more on the artistic and storytelling side. So SJ is an Emmy-nominated filmmaker and award-winning writer, producer, and director. She's also a tenured member of the faculty at Baylor University. And what she's really done is by combining her expertise and experience at the intersection of education, filmmaking, and social entrepreneurship, she's established herself as one of the most connected executive producers and writers in independent film and media. So her work has played at major film festivals, it's been acquired by Netflix, and in 2018, she was recognized as part of the inaugural cohort of 50 Women That Can Change the World in Media and Entertainment, which is super cool. She's also one of my favorite community organizers in Austin, and it's funny, I actually went to an event um, about a month ago in Dallas and met a lot of people there. And it was funny because I'd be like, how did you end up at this event? And more than half the people I talked to were like, oh, because of SJ. And we actually go into her ideas on how to organize communities in this episode. So we start off by talking about really like what it means to be a storyteller and just her um piece on screenwriting kung fu is amazing. How learning structural rules can set creativity free rather than constrain it. And this was one of my favorite topics to discuss about how we've basically been sold this myth that the messiness of humanity is the source of all of our problems. But what if we operate from the assumption that we're actually all imperfect and that's okay? SJ distinguishes between networking and community by emphasizing that networking is inherently transactional. And a core principle of her community building, which I love, is that she is actually not at the center of it. So the people who come are the value, not her. We also talk about how her experience in sports and dance informed her creative process, how all stories are predictable. And if you understand story structure, they shouldn't feel predictable. And that was a really important distinction for me. So basically a great story makes you feel smart for predicting what happens or surprises you by deviating from it. She also talks about what it means to be a leader and how a leader uh, does a lot of the work, a lot of the invisible work for the sake of the work, not the recognition, like the conductor of an orchestra whose back is to the audience. And she talks about her experience. Um, and actually, this has been a common theme where a lot of 
people's creativity is related to something that happened in childhood. And she talks about how she had an experience with a teacher when she was really young who actually mocked her art in front of her class. And what that meant was she didn't write creatively again for 20 years. And she talks about how she went through that. And then 20 years later, she started being creative again. And I, I just love that story. And this is a, one of my favorite quotes from her, which is, if you hear that whisper urging you to create, it's never li- too late to listen to it. And also, I also love what she said about this, which is life got so much better for me the day I quit trying to prove myself. And I think so many of us are doing things because we're trying to prove ourselves. And once you let go of that, it just, it absolutely changes. So hope you enjoy this wide ranging conversation. I definitely learned a lot from it personally. And as always, let us know what you think. So SJ, welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for doing this. This is my second in-person interview instead of Zoom, and I'm so happy to test this out with you. You've had this incredibly amazing career, winning Emmys and teaching and screenwriting and all of these different things. But I want to start with, like, what for you, what does it mean to be a creator and a storyteller? I love thinking about this kind of question. And I think I probably give a slightly different answer every time because it relates to where I am in my own creative process or in my life at the moment that someone asks it to me. On a very general level, I think that being a storyteller and a creator means tapping into something that's part of all of us. We are by nature creative people. It's often something that we forget as we grow up. C.S. Lewis always said that The biggest problem he saw with the modern world and with adults is the loss of the imagination. So on a number one level, it's really that, like tapping into our imagination, letting go of fear, being willing to shape culture. I think there's also a great responsibility that comes with that. It's kind of like Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. So it also means thinking about what life the stories that we create have once we let go of them. And that takes me into a realm that I think of as the ethics of storytelling. Like, how can I tell stories that not only inspire people, sometimes that take on really difficult issues, but that go out and do no harm? They try to leave the world a better place than where they began. Can you give an example of that? Yeah. I was once in a virtual reality conversation during a side event at South by Southwest many years ago now, and folks were talking about, you know, sort of, well, if people don't like the virtual reality experience, they can just take the headset off. And I thought, wow, like we need to talk about this because if you're creating virtual reality or if you're writing a novel, if you're writing a poem, if you make a video, it doesn't really matter the medium if if people experience stories and you know nothing about how your brain responds to stories, then you assume that it's just fun and games. The reality is once someone has consumed a story or put on a virtual reality headset and they've experienced something, they cannot undo it. Their brain has processed it almost like creating a memory. And that can bring all kinds of ethical problems to the forefront. Like, is it something I want to see on screen? Do I want to experience a sexual assault from the point of view of the perpetrator or the victim? Is that really helping anyone? Or do I want to participate in it from the point of view of somebody who wants to take action, for example? Like we have to think about the stories that we create and how we interact with them because those stories have very real consequences of the minds of the people who consume them. Yeah, and I think there's research that says that like the brain can't really tell the difference between a real and imagined experience. Yeah. Especially in virtual reality, it, it almost feels real. 
Oh, yes. I mean, it is real to all extents and purposes, right? I've been fascinated by this for, for some time now. There's this thing that Uri Hassan studied, uh, mostly up at Princeton, called neural coupling. And what that means is even when you saw shit or, or anybody out there, when you tell a friend a story, when you have them relive with you something that you've experienced, if it's told in a certain way, if it's powerful, then if we put someone in a functional MRI machine, whether they're telling the story or hearing it for the first time or reading it in written form, our science and our technology today is not advanced enough yet to tell the difference between where the blood goes in our brains, whether you're the teller or the consumer of the tale. Now, that has some really interesting implications. I think, for example, I don't know if some folks have read Elie Wiesel's Night, uh, May He Rest in Peace, but that tale of the concentration camps, I remember the first time I read it, I still remember the scene where there's these bloody footsteps in the, sto in the snow. When we talk about never forgetting, what happened. I mean, that's a powerful example of neural coupling. I felt like I had been to witness these scenes in the concentration camps and I wanted to take action. And that's really possible whether we want to make people happy or make them feel sad. And it's important to think about that power. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I didn't even thought of a lot of these implications. Um, and you obviously, like, you're teaching at Baylor. How does that sort of like influence where you're teaching the next generation of storytellers? And like, what are other things like this that you think about? Yeah, it's a funny trajectory I've been on. Like, I think that in many ways, I cut my teeth on really understanding how stories shape culture by pursuing a PhD in literature at Princeton that led me down to Baylor to teach in the Honors College. And I love teaching intellectual tradition. Like, I get to read thinkers with young minds from Plato all the way up to 20th and 21st century thinkers. And that's a real opportunity to watch the constancies in storytelling across hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, right? It's not until I did that that in a very medieval way, actually, I started cutting my teeth on my own creative work. And that used to be an obvious process. Like if you went to one of the first universities back in the Middle Ages, let's say the University of Paris, for example, it was kind of expected at Paris or at Padua or at Oxford that you would study the masters, much like painters did in the Renaissance, mm -hmm. so that you could then create your own stories for your own age and transfer these nuggets of learning and knowledge from one generation and from one place to another. So I guess eventually, after teaching great stories for a long time and studying specifically what makes them work and how they journey and what makes them go viral or makes them be powerful, it made sense that I started cutting my teeth on telling my own stories and then finding that loop full circle back to teaching people in classroom and workshop settings how to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things like that you're teaching that people would find surprising about storytelling or like non-intuitive? You know, I think that we have this relationship to creativity where we want it to just be innate. And creativity in its rawest form is innate. I mentioned that earlier. I think we all have it. We're all predisposed to create. However, you know, I had a prof at UCLA. Oh my gosh, I loved this analogy. He talked about Kung Fu. And he said, you know, Kung Fu in Asian traditions, we think of it today in martial arts terms, but it can really apply to anything. It means a form of mastery. So at first, he would say, when we're children, we play with stories and we play with creativity without any rules. And then when you want to get 
really immersed in it. You study the rules to the point that sometimes it feels like it hampers your creativity while you're learning, right? This is your wax on, wax off phase. Color inside the lines. (laughs) Yeah, you're (laughs) like, why am I doing this? But his point, he said, was to really achieve kung fu, like screenwriting kung fu, where you would go back and you would play like a child again, but the movements of your storytelling would carry with them these rhythms that you had studied and these constructs that you had studied that would make your play more productive. So I like to think of good storytelling as, you know, you lay the blueprints for a house. Mm -hmm. You have to put in load-bearing walls so the whole thing stands up, and then you can, like, build whatever you want. So I like the confines, the rules, the ways we engage with that structure actually sets our creativity free. It doesn't limit it. And I think that's surprising to everyone when they realize that by studying some rules— of structure, they can become amazing storytellers and set their creativity completely free. And I know this is um, something that people study for years and, and can't be explained like in a few sentences, but if you can try, like what are some of those rules of structure? Like if someone's listening and what are things they can take away in terms of structure that will improve their storytelling like right after they listen to this? Oh, that's actually easy. Yeah, so, I mean, if you really want to get jiggy with this, you can go all the way back to Aristotle and his three-act structure, and Steven Spielberg picks up on this too. So Aristotle says all stories have to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. What on earth does that mean? Shakespeare is going to implement this. Spielberg says that today the problem with our storytelling is it often has a beginning. It sometimes has a middle And it all too often does not have an end. (laughs) So the idea here is that I think in many ways it mimics life. Aristotle pointed this out as well. Like there are these natural rhythms that we see in motion and storytelling that allow us to experience things that we don't live firsthand. Sometimes they can be cautionary and sometimes they can just help us experience things that we cannot do due to our daily geographic location or temporal location or whatever it might be. And basically, if you go back, it's the same as what Joseph Campbell is going to pick up on in his hero's journey. There's this sort of idea that your character begins somewhere and you want to get in late. You want to join them right before the moment where they're kind of fed up with their life. They know that there's something more for them. They're they're being called to greatness. And then something happens. Let's say your character is a little purple pig. And it realizes one day when it sees its reflection in a pond that all the other pigs are pink and it's Mm -hmm. purple. It doesn't know what to do with this. and it, It's sort of like this like crisis moment. Mm-hmm. And it remembers, we call that the inciting incident. And it remembers the story that it heard of a purple pig of old, you know, who set the little pigs free, you know, et cetera. And, you know, let's say that uh, a village of predators attacks all his little friends. And now he has to make a choice. Will he stay or will he go? Mm-hmm. And when he decides to make that commitment to pass over the threshold, that's when we get out of Act 1 and into Act 2. And he encounters the extraordinary world of the quest, which takes him all the way to where he makes a stupid decision, somewhere around the midpoint, where he thinks, I've got it now. I am going to just not listen to Obi-Wan Kenobi if we go to Star Wars. I'm going to deliver the princess by myself. I'm going to rescue her with Han Solo. Mm-hmm. And I've got a horrible plan for getting into the cell block and no way to get out, as Princess Leo pointed out herself. That takes us into the second half of Act 2, all the way down to the moment where something horrible happens as a result of these actions. In the case of Star Wars, Obi-Wan Kenobi gets sliced to pieces by Darth Vader. And finally, we have to set aside our selfishness, our own agenda, 
our goals, everything we thought the quest was going to be, to be part of something bigger than ourselves and to push forward. Um, that's really your three movements, like being initiated into the journey, going on the journey, getting it wrong, and realizing it was never about you. It was always about something bigger than you. And once you can like make that commitment to be part of the thing that's bigger than yourself, you become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Those are the kind of stories that I love. I love that structure. I think it actually, I feel like it mimics a lot of what is happening in this influencer world right now, where people start becoming influencers and it's all about them. Like, look at me, look at me, look at me. And I have a lot of friends who've gone through this now where like you reach a point with your business where it just starts feeling empty. Mm. And I think that's what a lot of them are going through now, which is like connecting to something bigger because they're, they're just like just making money. Like what's next? Yeah. Oh, this is such an important point. I'm convinced that at some point there has to be like an Aristotle primer for entrepreneurs because this guy, you know, he's writing this over 2,000 years ago, but he has a lot figured out when it comes down to doing life. So in his book, The Nicomachean Ethics, he points out that happiness is not about a, a warm, fuzzy feeling like we'd think about it today. Joy is a feeling and sadness is a feeling, but happiness is about being attuned with our purpose. Aristotle talks about teleology. And once you get in line with that purpose, you can experience great happiness, whether it's in moments of joy or sadness. And I think that the world is really tuning in to that, like temporal, what Aristotle would call secondary goods, don't make us happy. They just give us more here and now. But, you know, more of nothing, of meaning, just means more of nothing. It doesn't amount to something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've seen that throughout history, right? You've seen great creatives like actors, actresses, singers, entrepreneurs, I mean, even recently, who just find their lives empty and, heaven forbid, you know, don't reach out to a friend and for, decide for to end their own life. Anthony Bourdain, Kate Spade, recently at the mm -hmm. heights of their careers. You know, that's not much different than when we think of Marilyn Monroe. It's so Robin very, Williams. very sad. Yes, Robin Williams was one that really hit me. His his work in Dead Poets Society really influenced my and shaped my life. How so? I think that his view of teaching as a creative act is what kept me in the classroom over all of these years. And that's seen when he teaches people that poetry is not just about reading in a book. It's about standing on top of the desk and sounding your yop. You know, it's like not taking ourselves so seriously, unleashing ourselves from all these preconceived ideas that people have of us. Who cares at the end of the day? You cannot live your life for somebody else's vision of you, which is not the same as not listening to wise counsel, you know, and having people who will hold you accountable. That's very, very important. But we talked about that a little bit earlier, right? Like, I think that we all do well to get to a place where we never feel like we have to censor what we really think. Mm -hmm. Because in that moment of transparency and vulnerability, that's when we can really connect and find our purpose, find our meaning, find like-minded people, and embrace people who think and live differently than us. And, and how so, so like if someone's listening, like how do they separate that? Like people they should look up to and, and listen from versus like maybe like the charlatans because there's so much happening in our world right now mm -hmm. with like all of these influencers or people with followings. How do people separate that? I think a track record is really important. I mean, I'm probably in an, a minority of people today. Maybe not, but 
I don't really put much stock in online environments. Mm -hmm. They're very, very useful for, for connecting people. But just because you have hundreds of thousands of people following you doesn't mean that you have something intelligent to say. It mm -hmm. might be that you make people feel good or you sell them the promise of something that they want. I'm much more interested in counsel that will hold me accountable and tell me things I don't necessarily want to hear. You know, I once had a really great director tell me that, you know, the difference as a screenwriter when you get notes that matter and notes that don't, if you think about it like being in a relationship. Mm -hmm. So let's say you've made something. It can be a product. It can be a podcast. It can be a screenplay and you're getting notes on it. And somebody tells you, hey, man, I think your girlfriend's a really bad person, mm -hmm. right? You know in your gut at that moment, if you're like, this was the director's point, you know in your gut at that point, if you're like, no, man, how dare you say that? That's not true. She's amazing. Or if you're like, oh, the criticism has something valid about it. So you need to look for those gut intuitions. I think when you receive negative criticism, and you certainly, I choose not to discard negative criticism. I think it's one of the, most valuable things we can receive. I agree. And I think I think we're also like living in this like weird world right now where people actually feel so for example, like I, I did a podcast episode today earlier and I sent it to our mutual friend Rachel and she sent me this amazing feedback and she was like, I don't want to be harsh. I'm like, no, please be harsh because the the group of people who who can do that and see those things is so small. And then the ones who actually share it is even smaller. Oh yes. Absolutely. I mean I've had when I was learning, I've had a director tell me, hey, you know, your dialogue needs to pick up more rhythm and spunk. And I was like, how do I do that? And he gave me a list of like 90 films to watch and screenplays to read and gave me some of them to photocopy right up front. And I sat and studied them and it made me a much better writer. If we are only looking for, you know, the fluffy teddy bear trophy, I call it, mm -hmm. you know, like the, the participation trophy, then what are we really looking for? Very extraordinary man in my life that we've talked about also, Paul Young, who wrote The Shack. He once said something very wise to me along these effects. He said, you know, today, so many people are focused on wanting to be extraordinary. Why? Why can't we be focused on doing ordinary, like in the real meaning of the world, of the word? Why can't we focus on doing exactly what we were put here to do, like being in our lane and being great at it? Human beings in and of themselves, in their ordinariness, ordinariness, they're powerful. They're interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, trying to get outside of that all the time and constantly wanting to be uh, ahead of the pack, whatever that means, it's a whole lot of effort for a whole very little return. Yeah, or it's also like um, being who you're not. Um, so one of the funny things in, is in this like world of influencers, which is really interesting, by the way, because... I've had a chance to work behind the scenes with a lot of them. And I think mm -hmm. the biggest thing I at least learned was we would put them on a pedestal and then you go behind the scenes and you're like, oh, all of them are just normal people. And they have things that aren't working and their lives aren't perfect. Because I think a lot of people imagine that their lives are perfect and they're not. That's so interesting. I mean, I think you're right. It's interesting to me because I operate from the opposite assumption. I like to operate from the assumption that everybody's human. Mm -hmm. And therefore, everybody is imperfect, and their lives are not supposed to be not messy, right? Who's mm -hmm. selling us this myth 
that humans or people in power or people who've achieved what the secular world tells us represents some form of success. Who is selling us the myth? Where do we get the idea from that, that all of the messiness of humanity goes along with it? I mean, Lucretia says in The Nature of Things, the absence of change is death. Uh, that's kind of scary, right? If we have nothing left to learn, there's no reason to keep going. So I wonder what the world would look like if, in general, we operated from the assumption that people are messy, they're imperfect, and we don't even have to say they're just normal. Like, what does that even mean? They are human beings, and that comes with a lot of complications. <laughs> and at the end of the day, human beings, you know, I, I think in general want to feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves, or they feel fulfilled when they do, and they also want to connect with other human beings. So that doesn't go away when people put you on a pedestal. Maybe putting people on a pedestal is one of the cruelest things we can do to them because it's denying them the right to be human or the right to make mistakes. I've never said, heard someone say it that way, but I think it's so important that, yeah, we're, we're basically denying people the right to be human. Mm -hmm. um, where, do you, where do you think that comes from? At least recently, especially with the rise of like social media and... I think it's a great question. Probably in part because people are publicly triaging their lives. I think that's really dangerous. I don't think people are very fulfilled by connecting in online environments. I prefer to take most of my relationships and friendships offline and really connect with people in person whenever possible. But, you know, the media over a long time now, especially in advertising, right? We, we're constantly sold on this idea that if you buy this deodorant, you'll get the girls. Like, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> or if you buy this car, you know, you'll get the girls. Or apparently if you buy this burger, you'll get this model in a bikini. It's fueling Again, this, this desire for secondary goods, for things that are not necessarily, you know, bad in themselves, but they're of a baser nature than the, the kinds of pursuits we can really throw ourselves into. And it's pretty much impossible to escape that kind of visual and even auditory programming. I mean, our brains process images, I believe, up to 60,000 times that's six zero thousand times faster mm -hmm. than words and facts. So if you think about the images with which we're surrounded, I mean, we are airbrushing people on magazines. We, we are constantly setting up these standards mm -hmm. that don't correspond to reality. And I think that has very deep, far-reaching consequences on our psyches. Yeah. There's an entrepreneurship version of that too, right? And it's the infernal lists. Like, oh, you know, I get on this list or that list. And all of these things have their purpose. They're, they're not inherently bad. It can be great for helping you leverage them to, to connect and to progress in your career. But when the list becomes the end mm -hmm. in and of itself, I think that's when it becomes really yeah, we, dangerous. One of our other guests, um, Sahil Lewinke, who started Gumroad, he talked about how, I think he was on the Forbes list or something. And then six or seven months later, he had to lay off 75% of his staff. Oof. And he was basically like, yeah, like just one of my VCs, and I think he's publicly tweeted about this, just bought his bought him onto the list because a lot of these lists are just really being just paid for by people with deep pockets. Mm -hmm. um, like they're buying their way onto the lists. You mentioned comedian. I think that's something that I've seen you, observed you like do really well in Austin. And I think I, one of the things I'm seeing with like people with online audiences, everything is moving towards community. 
So can you talk about that? Like how you think about it and how someone who's listening, maybe they're like a creative, they don't have anyone around them, what they should be doing? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, at the end of the day, I think everybody does well to sit down and reflect upon what brings them joy and what brings them a sense of completion in life. And, you know, you can keep hitting the dopamine of getting on lists and winning awards, or you can pursue a different type of fulfillment. You know, I just, usually when I'm writing a project or something like that, it's because I have to, it like sits in my head for so long. If I don't get it out, it's going to drive me insane. So I'm realizing that theme of communities carrying over even to a little children's book I recently finished called Ralph's Christmas Quest. Ralph loses his magic button. And he never finds it, but he does come to realize that the real magic that he has in his life is his friends. Uh, and I think that's true for all of us. We, we deeply need and crave that. People feel more isolated than ever. You know, you're starting to hear in America the word passed around of the loneliness epidemic. Mm -hmm. This was going around in Europe as a terminology several years ago. There was even a Scandinavian country, I can't remember which one, appointed a minister of loneliness uh, in order to deal with the crisis. And we know that when someone feels isolated and alone, recent studies are saying that that has as far-reaching consequences on your health as like smoking like packs of cigarettes a day is terrifying. So I think that in order to find fulfillment in our social nature as human beings while building meaningful community, not networking, like real community. How, where, how do you separate those two, real community versus networking? Networking is inherently transactional. It is, I go to something to connect with something because I want something. And, you know, Adam Grant goes into this a good deal in, in give and take, at mm -hmm. least setting up givers, takers, and matchers. That can be a really tiresome environment for a giver because people are always hitting them up for things. Like right. people come in order to leave with a treasure trove of, of business cards and they, they don't leave with a single relationship. Community, I think, is making a commitment. And this is where dinners come in for me in an important way making a commitment to get to know people over time, to revisit them over time, to do life with them over time, to go through up seasons and downturns. And you can start small. I mean, you can start as small as getting three other colleagues in time that you might not know so well together for brunch and build from there. You know, if everybody brings one person the next time and then you double it again the next time and the next time, before you know it, you'll have a thriving community that's based on what you bring to the table I think that's very important to me. What do you want to bring to the table to be part of this environment rather than what do you want to take from it? Because if we all bring something to the table, we can create this non-zero-sum game and that creates an infinite goodness which allows us to then take back out mm -hmm. without depleting anyone. Yeah, and I think, so So one of the thing, themes like is just coming through all of these interviews as community. And I think if people take just this out of this interview, which is find people they that you resonate with, invite three people, have a dinner, then have everyone invite one more. And I think that's so important to do. Oh yeah. I mean, that's exactly how I started the very thriving like group of friends, this sort of collective residency that we have together at Sundance now uh, in Utah every year. I never thought of building that as a community. It wasn't structured as a business proposal or as a new group or as an organization. It started with a little two-bedroom apartment and four people who went out to Sundance together with the goal 
of debunking the sort of system that kept people out, mm-hmm. like the gates that hold people out. How do we start disrupting that? And now I think this year we'll take like 30, 28 or 30 people out with us this year. It's it's crazy, but that literally just comes from organically building year by year. You got to be in it for the long game. I mean, there's very little in life that's instantaneous. It's kind of like a good dinner. You can get fast food on your way to work, or you can sit down and have a nice dinner. <laughs> or it's like the marketing version of like, make $10,000 in 42 days. And yeah, I think we're just like creating these idealized expectations for people. Yeah, I don't like fast. I don't like instant rice. I don't like fast food. I have no desire to eat the human equivalent of dog food. I would much rather, you know, clean my vegetables at home, scrape them off, cook them. It doesn't have to be complicated. There's a beauty in creating over time rather than buying into this culture of immediacy that in many ways Mm -hmm. the online environment has created for us. I mean, look around. Where do you feel the happiest? Standing in the middle of a beautiful medieval cathedral that took hundreds of years to build or in Walmart? Well, work was not built for aesthetics. Mm -hmm. Why would we want the stories that we're creating to simply be here today and gone tomorrow? Like if they have something to say about the human experience, I think that unless you're, you know, shooting news or something Mm -hmm. that's destined to simply live in the immediate or document what's going on right now, why wouldn't we want to create an enduring legacy? Even if it doesn't take off until after we're we're gone. I'm pushing daisies. Tolkien had no success with the Lord of the Rings during his lifetime. I'm really happy he wrote the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Same here. How So how does like, uh, so let's say like you're creating and you don't have that immediate success, right? What are, what drives you or someone to create in that sense? Because I think our world right now, so, or at least for me, even me, like for a part of time, it was like so tied to the external validation. Mm. So if that's not there, like, what drives it for creators? I remember the first time that external validation stopped being as important to me. Like, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was being awarded this prize when I was in grad school from Princeton. And I mean, I'd had a really tough time there. Not because of Princeton's fault. I just had to work really hard. I worked harder than I ever had in my life. And I was home, I think it might have even been for Christmas, with my parents And I got this phone call from the university. My mom gave me the phone and the lady on the other end said, hello, Sarah Jane, this is Princeton University. We're calling to let you know you've been awarded this fellowship, you know, for for the upcoming year. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I think you have the wrong number. And I hung up. (laughs) (laughs) And then they called back and uh, they were like, don't hang up, don't hang up. We don't have the wrong number. And I remember looking back thinking that's the first time that I was externally validated in a way that I didn't even know existed. Like mm-hmm. I didn't know the fellowship existed. And it felt really good to know that I'd labored for the goodness of the labor itself and not for the prize. There's a verse that I really like, win so I, run so as to win the race. Like don't run to win, but make your running so great that you can't help but win. And I felt that that moment. And my journey in life since then has really, I I can honestly say that any recognition that has come my way since that moment has come as a surprise. And it's only ever icing on the cake because the real reward to me 
is when I'm sitting struggling and I have a problem, right, that I have to surmount in my work or I'm getting writer's block and I fight Mm -hmm. through it or I talk to a friend and I make the thing. Making the thing has become the reward. I think if you can have the patience to not care about the external validation, I'll give you back to teaching, like, Study so that you learn not to make the A, and you'll make an A. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But if you study to make an A, you'll study so poorly, you'll never make the A. It's the same with creativity. Like, embrace it because it's what you do. And in some cases, do it because it makes you happy, not because you're going to win some prize for it. But also, on the flip side, don't let anybody tell you that you cannot make it a cornerstone of your life or that you're wasting your time, right? It's just the greatest prizes we win in life are the ones we don't try to win. I'm a firm believer of that nowadays. It's a big shift in perspective compared to when I was like 20 years old, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think one one of the things I've also found is like, when you actually don't focus on something, the things that you want come. So like, for example, like in business, if you start focusing on just making your customers happy instead of profit, Mm. that is actually what leads to the most profit because it's sort of like this indirect goal. I think like that's how nature moves. Like nature moves indirectly, but we try and go direct. Or some people do at least. Some people do. You talked about the sort of like the pursuit of just like the value of the pursuit. So from teaching, you've also done a lot of like screenwriting. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about that experience? And Yeah, it kicked my butt. I remember I came to screenwriting later in life. And through my research and storytelling, and I remember somebody from Hollywood, you know, was visiting campus and they picked up as a joke, like my first academic book to sort of read it and be like, oh, this is going to be like very uninteresting and Mm -hmm. big words. And they started reading, they got to the bottom of the page and they were like, why are you not writing fiction? And I said, well, I want to, I just haven't done it yet. And they said, well, what about screenwriting? So I ended up going out and I started by reading scripts for studios Uh, via various organizations and giving notes, whether it be like for the actors or for feedback on how to make them more marketable or how to make the scenes work. And eventually several people, including some folks on the lots at the studios asked, why are you not like doing this? So being the glutton for learning that I am, I went back to do a stint at UCLA to, to hone my craft a little bit. And I find so much joy in navigating the ability to, to like create a world, but to write in a very precise way. So unlike a novel... What does that mean, write in a precise way? Mm-hmm. So unlike a novel, where you kind of have an unlimited page count if you really want, a screenplay typically has to fit within a certain number of pages. So right? it's the idea of having constraints. Yeah, you have these constraints. You have 100 to 120 pages to get a story across. And it has to have this beginning, middle, and end. It has, for me, a very precise, because I don't write art films. I I write more in a story-driven, rooted in sort of blockbuster style, even if it's an independent film uh, structure. So you have these parameters. You have, like, it's very precise. You have 27 pages to get out of Act 1. You have sort of up to page 70, 75 to really take your character to to a low and... Mm -hmm. You have these last sort of page 80 on to sort of carry us through the third act. And the funny thing is, is the more you study it, the more you learn how to turn a great scene and how to build a great story, you never have to think about these number counts. The screenplay I just finished and turned into a producer on Sunday, 
hit every page without me trying to. And so it's become like muscle memory almost. Yeah, it's just like Michael Phelps when he gets in the pool. He's not thinking the arc of my arm needs to look this way for my stroke to be the best. He just mm -hmm. gets in that pool and he swims. And that goes back to what you were saying about just putting in the work. Because yes. Because that's the only way that happens. Yes. It's the extension of the, you know, whether you like the terminology or not, 10,000 hour rule, mm -hmm. right? That has to be applied in the, the right direction. I mean, it's very true, I think, for most things in life, practice makes purpose. Uh, perfect. I love salsa dancing and I could not salsa dance to save my life when I started. My teacher, who had won many world titles, I happened to fall into a studio in Santa Monica, just said, you know, practice your basic step. 30 minutes a day. Don't try to learn anything else. Just practice your basic step. And once you have that solidly rooted foundation, you can embellish upon it. If you buy into the culture of immediacy, you're going to get frustrated. You're not going to finish your apprenticeship. And then we get to what Ira Glass talks about when he says, you know, you get into this game because you have taste mm -hmm. and then you have expectations for yourself, but your skills don't match up to your expectations. And so you get depressed. You don't want to create anymore. Well, what if instead we viewed our life as an opportunity to close that gap between our taste and our abilities, our expectations and our abilities? Why does it have to be right now? Why can't mm -hmm. I become better over time? I think that's exciting. I'm excited to see what I can do five years from now that I can't do now. Yeah, in some ways for me, like even this is that because I had this experience of working with all of these amazing podcasters. And I remember when I was starting, I would start comparing my first few interviews to what they'd done after like two, three years. I was just like, this is not good. But then I think what you were talking about is that will come through the effort of doing it instead of expecting it to be really good at the start. Absolutely. How did it make you feel when you're so self-critical? I think it was weird initially, but then I just started kind of like looking at everything as feedback and enjoying the process of it. That's awesome. Like one of my other hobbies when I was uh, a teenager in France is I uh, raced downhill skiing and they used to video us on like the mm -hmm. ski course and then give us feedback. And it was exactly in that spirit, right? You didn't watch yourself because you were never going to ski the race again. You watched yourself so that you could give the first critique on your form mm -hmm. and then your coach would give the critique on the form and you'd rewatch your race and you'd think about what you were going to redo so that you could metaphorically run so as to mm -hmm. win the race, right? And it's that feedback loop that I think is so healing because if we look at it instead of wanting to be perfect right now to go back to that pedestal mm -hmm. and if we assume that it's going to take practice and time then the self-critical voice is no longer one that prevents you from creating it's one that says you can do this you're getting right. better every time the more you do it the better you're going to get put your time in stop talking about it with your friends stop telling your hairdresser about the book that you're going to write stop saying you're going to write it next year like just start now it doesn't have to be good uh, at UCLA the first draft, for the most part, like the profs called it, like your vomit draft. So vomit it up and then look for the chunks that look tasty and pull them out and you can make dinner tomorrow with those ones. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny that that concept of the vomit draft, it's actually the second time that's come up today because it came up in another interview. The other thing I'm curious about is like, is, is this idea of rules or how things are done? So like one of the things I realized, and I'm glad I realized it like very early on is 
there's this idea that like podcasting is a narrative linear style interview. I was like, who came up with that? So when you're going to a new skill set, there's obviously like all of these rules, right? How do you think about those? And, and when do you start thinking about breaking the rules or how everything's always done? I like to think that breaking the rule becomes intentional. And when you get really in the groove, it becomes a moment of inspiration. You think of something. You really don't think about it. In fact, I mean, if I'm totally honest, I experienced after working on screenwriting for a while, really what I think it's William Faulkner said that, you know, you've really become a writer when you just, and your story's hitting its stride. And sometimes it takes you to get past halfway through the story to do this. When your character just starts doing stuff and you pick up a pencil and you follow them around and you, do, you don't think of anything. You just write down what they're doing. You watch them and you write down what you're doing. They take on a life of their own. So they're almost like telling you what to write instead of you telling them what they're yeah. doing. So what happens for me is like, Every project tends to be this experience. I sit down and for me, I have a process for outlining for screenwriting. And I go through the outline and it helps me test for my load-bearing walls and if things are working or not. And I just keep going through it and I start writing. And even if it's not working, I just keep writing. And in the last screenplay that I wrote, it's really at the end of act one that I had this vision of, oh my gosh, I know everything that's not working. And instead of finishing it, I'm just going to start over fix it. And I wrote all the way through. Having that flexibility to pivot and the courage to pivot when you feel that the story's starting to work. The rules for me is like your workout. It's like doing all the prep so that you can be in condition that when the moment of inspiration hits, mm -hmm. you can run with it. Like you can't ask the character who starts running around to stop while you catch right. up with them. Right. So you need your skills to be able to follow them. That's why you train. But ultimately, you just go through the motions over and over and over again until that moment of inspiration hits. And when that happens, I legitimately don't remember what I have written in the scene until I go back and read it. It's like a really cool experience. Do, do you have that in almost like every project? Yes. Or? Yeah. In fact, I remember with the children's book recently, Ralph's Christmas Quest, I'd never written like a rhyming children's book. And Ralph's Christmas Quest never had the intention of rhyming. Mm -hmm. And I got about a third of the way through and all the lines were starting to have this rhythm and I was writing it in prose, but I was noticing that at the end of that rhythm, all of the lines were rhyming and I wasn't even doing it on purpose and I liked it. And at that point I had to say, oh crap, I got to go back to the beginning and start over and make everything rhyme again. But that's the fun. Mm -hmm. The fun is you being willing to be the steward of this story mm -hmm. that comes to you. Elizabeth Gilbert talks about that in Big Magic. She says, stories will come to you and they will visit you and they will stay with you for a while. And if you do not tell them, they will go to someone else. She has an example in her book where she worked on this novel and she gave it up for a while. She was stuck. She didn't go back to it. And she went to dinner with another woman one night and the author told her what she was working on. And it was exactly the novel that Elizabeth mm -hmm. Gilbert had been working on. And she said, there you have it. If you don't embrace the big magic, if you don't embrace the moment of big magic, the story will leave you and it will go and find a better steward. So just don't be afraid. Like, get in the game. Like, get in the game. Get in the arena. Try. Until you try to hit the ball, you don't know if you can. Yeah, and I think, yeah, we, a lot of us, like, kind of, like, wait for that to strike, but it doesn't come until we have to start doing. Um, one thing you mentioned was the, the rhythm of writing, which I'm really curious that you use those words because I've used, I've seen you use those to like describe dance and stuff. Mm -hmm. Are there common themes that you've seen 
in like dance and screenwriting and teaching storytelling and all the other stuff that you've done like that around learning? Yeah, there's a lot of similarities. I don't know if they pop out to me just because I do all these things or if they're they're really there. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. I have to ask myself as a storyteller, like, is this really happening? Did that did I make that up? <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun place to live with your head, or you know, you spend the day living for so long with an imaginary character and you try to go to dinner with your friends and you have a really hard time connecting with real life people because you've been living with this other person in your head all day. So dancing. Salsa specifically, I'll speak to it, you know, has a structure in the relationship between how the follower and the leader Mm -hmm. dance. And then it has very specific beats that you dance on. But within that structure, there's a lot of room for creativity. And there's a lot of room Mm -hmm. for doing whatever you want to do to make the dance better, more enjoyable, to surprise your partner. And I think that's the kind of balance that great writing strikes. I really like to think of it not as rules, but as almost story DNA. Like stories have a DNA. And another way to think about it is just general physics. Like when you and I walk around Sashet and we assume the floor is not going to fall out from under us in everyday life, although it can in a story. Mm -hmm. Anything can happen in a story. I mean, we can escape into another universe through the rug in your living room. And that's one of the fun things about it too. But we never think about gravity as we walk around. And yet it is there. It governs everything in our day. Right. It's always there. So as a screenwriter, my rules, that's gravity. Richard Walter, one of my profs at UCLA, used to say that if all stories are predictable because of story DNA, if you know how it works, all stories are predictable. But if they feel predictable, if they look predictable to a reader or an audience who's sitting in the movie theater... It's not the predictability that's a problem. It's that they're too predictable. Can you give an example of how you would differentiate with that or differentiate that? Yeah, a really great story will make you feel smart when you say, I knew it. I knew that's what was going to happen or that surprised me. I thought it was going to go in another way. Mm -hmm. Those reactions are programmed by the writer. Like even your satisfaction of feeling like you saw through the matrix or you were taken for surprise, like in the sixth sense when they start to rewind Mm -hmm. and you're like, whoa, all of that is programmed. But if you're sitting in a story and you're like, oh my goodness, they're going to walk into the next room and this is going to happen. And then this is going to happen. And then this is going to happen. You're no longer enjoying the story. You're no longer enjoying the ebb and flow. You're just stuck in the predictability of it being like, in many ways, the humdrum of everyday existence. Mm -hmm. Stories have to deliver something more. They have to take us out of our lives. It can even help us engage with our lives again by seeing everything through a slightly different point of view that changes everything. Just a little shift Mm -hmm. changes everything in our life. That's why I love animation. Like animation characters are not bound by any of our constraints. Right, there's no rules. And it also, one of my mentors talked about how like, when you're watching animation, you as a viewer, you're just suspending all belief or disbelief or whatever yeah. because it's a different world. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is there's no rules that necessarily apply from our world, but there are rules, right? So for that world to be consistent, you have to put certain world rules in play. It's just that they're not the same as our world. So if my character can take a piece of chalk and draw a, a door on the wall and punch it out and walk mm-hmm. through it, the viewer's assumption or the reader's assumption is that the next time they want to do that, they can. Mm-hmm. 
So there's like these rules of engagement and fantasy plays with that too. In mm-hmm. fact, we're really upset when, you know, Lucy's gone through the wardrobe and like they go back with Edmund, but Edmund doesn't believe. Mm-hmm. And now like bang, 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 like, you know, there's, there's the other side of the wardrobe. There's no Narnia. Right. But once he gets stuck back in there, you know, and he goes and explores it himself, it's like we realize that part of the rule is like believing or the surprise element of falling into Narnia. Going in with the wrong attitude isn't going to make it work, but that's a rule Mm -hmm. nonetheless, right? C.S. Lewis has all these rules that are working in his universe. Like it's never Christmas, right? but it's always winter. So when we start to see things thaw, we know that the magic of the White Witch is losing its power because Mm -hmm. the rule is changing. It's called world building. We call that world building and storytelling. You have to build a consistent world. I'm curious, like, in the context of what we were talking about before, like community building, how are you applying these lessons? Oh, a lot. A lot. So I think that— And can you give examples, too? Yeah, I can. I think that one of the driving core principles of any community building work— that I do is that I not be at the center of it. Now, that does not mean I don't work really hard at it. It's more the idea that the people who come are the value, not me. That's a very concerted effort to avoid what I call, like and many people call the cult of the personality, where people show mm-hmm. up for, for the leader, right? And I think there's a model of servant leadership where your work does not go unnoticed and unthanked, but where you're a facilitator who brings people to the table to find value in each other Mm -hmm. rather than in yourself. And that I know has to be motivated by the way character webs work in stories. Like all the characters in a story are carefully constructed to have this iron sharpens iron effect on each other, I like to think. In other words, they're all unique They're all different, yet, again, at their core, they're all human. So they all seek happiness, but maybe they find it in different ways. And it's usually by exploring what makes Han Solo different from Luke Skywalker, from Princess Leia to Obi-Wan Kenobi to Yoda or Baby Yoda nowadays. (laughs) It's, It's in the differences that we find the real complexities of life and the lessons. That's where the iron sharpens iron comes in. So if you have a group of people... And they come to the table to hear from one person or for that one person to impose a point of view. That's much less fruitful than the person who's planning the community event, setting up pillars for success and then letting the magic of the people meeting each other happen. In teaching, this is also something we call the learner-centered model of education rather than the teacher-centered model of education. The idea that one person stands at the front of a room and lectures to people in little chairs really originates from the Industrial Revolution when Mm -hmm. schools were being constructed so that kids wouldn't have to go work in factories. And it's a really useful way to learn how to count and how to write. But it's not a useful way to learn how to think. Mm -hmm. So much like a screenwriter orchestrates the character web of the story or a novelist orchestrates the character web of a story, I think a good community convener orchestrates like a conductor. They're necessary. I mean, if Mm -hmm. the conductor's not there signaling the beats to the orchestra, 
Nobody in the orchestra can do their job. Yeah, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, right. But the conductor doesn't go over and try to play the first violin and the piano solo and the drums in the back. The conductor does seemingly invisible work. And I think the interesting thing about that example is the conductor usually has their back to the audience because they're not doing it for the recognition from the audience. Yeah, absolutely. They're they're doing it. They're connecting and harvesting and playing off the energy of all of the players, right? And it makes all the players better. It helps them work in harmony and in unison. When you bring a lot of really dynamic people to a table, let's say you bring 24 or 40 people together and they're all go-getters, then unless you have a conductor who's harnessing how to help them work in synchrony, you can get a lot of friction and a lot Mm -hmm. of ego. So my main guiding principle, other than not putting myself at the center, Um, is closely related to that. It's an expectation I have of all my guests to check their ego at the door, Mm -hmm. a terminology that I take from from Pixar. You know, there's no room for ego in the story room. The story comes first. So when people come together for an event, if we believe in non-zero-sum games, they all have something to bring, and it doesn't add up to the total of the people there. It adds up to infinity because of the point of resonance that it hits. And I think that's what makes people really excited to be part of community. It makes them better human beings. We leave the world of, oh my gosh, those seagulls in Finding Nemo, right? Mm-hmm. Mine, 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 <laughs> mine, 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 mine. Oh, so infuriating. Cute, but infuriating. Mine, mm-hmm. mine. And we start thinking in terms of us, we, our. Like, what do we want our world to look like? Maybe my ideas are not the only ideas. Uh, if we can model checking our ego at the door for folks that we convene in community, then we can get out of our way and let the community do its job, which is sharpening us, helping us grow, encouraging each other, sharing our gifts, helping people do life in a way that is more conducive to learning and growth than doing it alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think this this actually applies to something I'm I've been recently fascinated by, which I think you have a unique insight on, which is this idea that there's like the the business side of things and there's a creative side. And you'll see a lot of like creators be like, oh, the business people are just the suits, and the business people are like the creative people are just like the creators and they're whatever. And you've had you've had experiences on both sides. I'm curious how you think about that and like bridging that divide. Because in some ways, that's what I'm trying to do with this too. I think it's really cool. I think that's why your podcast is really important. And I'm so excited about it and excited to support it as it continues to grow and flourish, as I have no doubt it will. Thank you. So again, like, where does that myth come from? Who decided that there's the suits Mm -hmm. and the creatives? Also, like, I know a lot of people who don't wear suits and who are amazing entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. (laughs) and businessmen and women. And I know a lot of creatives who love to put a suit on sometimes, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, we we have all these dichotomies and dualities. Yeah. And division, right? As soon as division creeps in where I see us pit X versus Y person versus person, I like to sound an internal alarm bell. I think, wow, that's a really limiting way of thinking about things. What if instead I think that, yes, certain people hone and train that business acumen more and certain people hone and train that creativity more. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, again, it's the equivalent of 
this is another form of putting people on pedestals. It's like putting people in a box. Mm-hmm. I often like to say that if people are in boxes, then the boxes are really big and they don't have any corners, which by definition means they are not boxes mm-hmm. at all. But the boxes we put people in, they come from somewhere. They come from some presupposition. And I think sometimes they come from when we're growing up, people say, oh, this isn't a real job. Versus this is a real Mm -hmm. job. This is respectable. This isn't. You're good at this. You're not good at... Who the heck tells a child when they're seven years old if they are cut out to be a writer or a painter or a businessman? You you actually shared an interesting story about that last time we met, if you want to... Yeah, my hedgehogs. Oh my gosh, I used to write these poems as a little kid. That's why when I talk about Ralph, I don't say it's the first thing that rhymes that I've ever written because I used to write rhyming things a lot when I was really young and I loved it. I would sit with this little notepad in the back of the car as my parents drove me and my brother home from my dad's cricket matches or when we went out you know, to go hiking with our dog, who was always a giant standard poodle. And I'd have so much fun. And then one day, I was about seven years old, there was a competition. Here it goes, those infernal (laughs) lists, those lists that shut our creativity down. There was this competition at school, and you had to do a painting as well as a story. So I did a developed version of my hedgehog story, and I was very, very excited about it because I really loved writing it. And... I did my painting, and I'm just still to this day not a great artist, probably because this happened. I mean, maybe I would have studied art if I hadn't become terrified of it. Some people out there are terrified of math for the same reason. That's Mm -hmm. why they think they can't be businessmen. Somebody, like, yelled at them when they made a bad grade on a math test, and they assumed that they could never get good at it. So, yeah, so I go in, and this teacher, oh, my my mother— went in for a meeting with this teacher, don't be afraid if, if you're all wondering what happened to me at the end of this. I think my mother had a quite stern talk with this teacher, but it didn't change things for me in terms of my creativity. Um, my teacher made fun of me in front of the whole class. And maybe it wasn't as bad as I remember, but that's the point. Like I remember being mocked in front of the whole class and I remember specifically one thing she said, which is not true. And she said, this is evidence that in order to win at life, you have to be a good all-rounder. You can't just be really good at something. You have to be a little bit good at everything. And she held up my story and she said, this is a great story. And then she mocked my painting and told everybody like how bad it was. And that's why I couldn't place in the competition. And all the other kids laughed at me. And I didn't even tell the story like for years, but I went home that night. And I took my little notebook that I used to write rhyming stories in and I opened my dressing um, table drawer and I put it right in the back of the dressing table drawer and I closed it. And for mm-hmm. 20 years, I didn't write it creatively again. Wow. And, and that sort of echoes my story of why I stopped painting when I was a yeah. kid. And, and I think it's, um, I think it underscores what you said, which is these might be like small instances, but the impact it can have on someone is so big, kind of like relating back to what we talked about earlier, which is stories, even if they're not as, they might not seem real, they're real. Mm -hmm. Very much so. In fact, there's some studies done that say that like a greater indicator of our success at anything in life is the encouragement we receive, which is why, you know, adverse childhood experiences are, are so important to combat at early stages of education, especially amongst kids from underprivileged backgrounds, because the lack of encouragement, the lack of hearing anybody tell us that we can do it, uh, changes everything. The stories in our head are very powerful, very, very powerful. And that's one of the reasons I like fiction. 
it's a way to reprogram the stories in our heads Mm -hmm. too. Like we can experience, I mean, you can go to a show like Breaking Bad and see lives spiral out of control. And the purpose of that show is not to model the lives you see Mm -hmm. in it, right? Nobody, at least I hope nobody out there wants to be Walter White or Jesse by the time you get done watching the show. If you do, then you should like reach out to Sasha and I'm sure he can recommend a really great counselor (laughs) to help you reconsider that. But it's a cautionary tale. And then there's other stories that lift us up and make us aspire to be like the person Mm -hmm. in it. Right. And we all are there like, oh, my goodness, Ford versus Ferrari recently was one of those Mm -hmm. stories for me. Such an amazing, an amazing film about the power of friendship. And also just, I mean, talk about putting the suits up against the creatives in that in that show. It's a very powerful distinction that they build and rivalry that they build. But at the end of the day, we can let go of the stories that hold us back. Mm -hmm. I really believe that. We can let go of the stories we that hold us back and we can replace them with kinder narratives to ourselves. And I just know that there are many people out there who hear that little whisper that Steven Spielberg talks about and that's urging them to write or to create, to make something, to build something, to start a business. And they're ignoring it because somewhere along the way, they have been programmed to think they can't do it that it's impossible or that it's too late. There's another myth. Mm -hmm. What does C.S. Lewis say? Uh, Something like it's never too old to to dream another dream. Yeah, and there's all these lists. I think like KFC, the founder started when he was in his 40s or whatever. Mm -hmm. Actually, I wanted to highlight like there's, I think there's a lot of people doing important work to help people with these stories. Mm -hmm. One of which is like new friends for me and old friends for you, Elizabeth and Emmanuel. Which, oh, I um, love Elizabeth so much. You invited me to their <laughs> event um, last weekend in Dallas, Unlikely Collaborators. Mm-hmm. They're just doing such amazing work to do that, to help people with that. Yeah, it's so important. I think one of the most important things they do is be willing to share their own personal stories, right? Whether sharing and unpacking their own personal story applies and translates directly to somebody else unpacking their own story, that's not the point, right? We all have a different unpacking process. But sometimes we just need to feel authorized by other people sharing, Mm -hmm. like, our difficulties. Like, I really hope that anybody that I tell the story of the hedgehog too. They asked me why I got back into it. I feel like there were signposts throughout my life that kept pushing me to write again. Like, it's crazy. Talk about divine intervention. There was this moment in college where I signed up late for classes and I needed an English credit and there were none left except a creative writing class. And I was like, I will not take that class. Because I'm not a writer. Because that teacher told me. And you were like, they were like, you're going to have to. And I was like, I will not take that class. In fact, I resisted it so much that because of the stories in my head, right? Like I resisted it so much that when the professor assigned the first paper, which was a memoir paper, I just wrote an academic paper instead and turned it in. And I love that this teacher did this to me because I turned it in and she was like, this is a beautiful paper. This is a well-written paper, but this is not the assignment. And she Mm -hmm. wrote a big fat F on it. She told me I had until Wednesday to write the assignment and to give it back to her. And I did. And it's in that moment that I reconnected. That was probably the best F someone's gotten. Yes. In a sense. And that is a story that motivates me with students still today. Like I just got off of set last week with, with students and we did a debrief on Monday and it's hard. You you can see their their little face. They're so excited about the projects that we mm-hmm. shot, but they get 
they get so sad if they hear anything negative. And I think that we are doing a great disservice to our youth today if we don't help them hear, hey, here's things we need to do better next time around. That's not a criticism. That's not a scolding. That's not a negative voice to control us. That's saying we are better. So let's Mm -hmm. acknowledge this and like make a little note of what we want to do better next time. Yeah. It's relating to criticism in a different way. Like I like to think of it as the encourager in my head. Mm -hmm. And then the encourager has to be like a kind coach. Like this is not lose 50 pounds in whatever crazy amount of time they they put you on TV to do it. Like you also need an encourager in your head who says, okay, it's time to go to bed now. It's time to rest your brain. It's time to cut yourself some slack. It's time, as Elizabeth would say, to remember that you're doing the best you can sometimes. I mean, if we could all be kinder to ourselves and our creativity, I think it would also make us more realistic. We wouldn't have the need to to prove ourselves in some way. Oh man, life got so much better for me the day I just quit trying to prove myself. I think that might be the perfect place to end because I know you have to run. We could keep going for another hour, but um, this idea that you don't have to prove yourself. Um, for those listening, if they find, want to find more of your work or just thank you for being on, where, they, where can they find you? I am easy to find uh, over on Twitter at SJ, I think underscore Murray, but you can find me. You're welcome to, to drop me an email on my work email too. It's easy to find online at sjmurray.co. I'm over on Instagram at SJ and Coco. And if you're interested in like putting yourself through the paces of really learning how to tell a great story. My book, Basics of Story Design, and the online course, Basics of Story Design, also easy to find online, sort of distills down into an online course about two semesters of my university teaching on this. Some New York Times bestsellers have been through it. Uh, Some really great screenwriters have used it to improve their stories. And I'm convinced that step-by-step, if you set aside 20 days for the 20 steps over, say, the next 60 days, you can finish your first draft of a story, too. Perfect. And we'll have all of those linked up. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you for having me. And pop on over to, to Netflix and IMDb and stuff and Amazon and check out some of my films. I'd love to hear from you about those, too. Definitely. And we'll have all of those linked up. Thank, thank you. you, Sasha. Thanks for having me. Yep. Hey, it's Sachit again. If you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did, make sure you thank our guests and let them know what you thought. There's easy links to all of their social media, Twitter, Instagram, everything else in the show notes. Secondly, make sure you head on over to creators.show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and additional bonuses. See you next week.